open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel, once again to the Gospel according to Luke. Believe it or not, this is number 46 sermon in our series called Mission to the World. We're not halfway done, so I'm assuming somewhere around 100, at least 90 when we get done. Mission to the World, Luke emphasizes clearly for us in this gospel account the love of God the salvation is not for the Jewish people alone but not for the religious people but for the outcast the marginalized the broken the weak and the rejected in this glorious account we see Jesus loving and showing compassion and mercy and grace rescuing and redeeming all nations all people of every tongue and tribe and over the past few weeks King Jesus has been teaching his followers what it means to be a disciple Followers of Christ who, who demonstrate and declare the gospel, the good news, that the Messiah has come, the King of Kings has come, he is Lord, he is ruler, he's come to minister to us the good news. He said in chapter Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, it's the gospel, the King of Kings is here. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns, I, that's the purpose in which I was sent. Later on in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed. Talk about his crucifixion, and the third day he'd rise again. So he's the king that has come, he's the king of kings, but he's not going to the throne in Jerusalem. Instead, he's going to the cross. He must first go to the cross to pay the debt we owe and bear the wrath we deserve for our sin and rebellion. And then three days later, rise from the dead. And the announcement of the resurrection, the empty tomb is the announcement that the sacrifice has been accepted. We don't have to worry and have to think. Or be concerned. It's been accepted. He rose from the dead. Forgiveness is offered to everyone who would repent, turn from their own lordship, and turn to Jesus Christ and repentance and faith. We saw in chapter 9 that Jesus calls the 12 men and calls them apostles and sends them out with power and authority to demonstrate and declare the gospel. Chapter 10, we saw him take 72 other disciples to go and do the same thing. They were instructed to demonstrate the gospel, to heal the sick, to, to set free the demon-possessed. In other words, have compassion and mercy to those in need. Demonstrating the gospel doesn't forgive anyone, but it shows the heart of God. When you have compassion and generosity and love toward others, it shows the very heart of God. But then they were told also to declare the king. The king has come. Calling people everywhere to turn and repent and to believe and walk and follow Jesus. That's what disciples do. They, they come to faith and then they follow Jesus. Lastly, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about priorities. We saw that. And attitudes and, and perspective. That a disciple must, must recognize that Jesus and the gospel takes first priority. Not second, not third, not an add-on, but must be first priority. We are to reorient our lives centered on Christ and the mission, the gospel. A new attitude and a new perspective as well. To love Jesus and to love as Jesus loves. To show compassion like Jesus shows compassion. To care for the outcast, the marginalized, the weak, the broken, rejected, just like Jesus does. And then last week we learned that our first priority was to what? Sit at the feet of Jesus, Martha and Mary, the story of Martha and Mary. Hearing his word. We do that before we serve the outcast, the marginalized, the, the weak and broken in our community. We need both. It must be done in that order, though. We, we sit at the feet of Jesus and we serve people. It is out of the grace, love, and compassion of Christ in the gospel that we serve others. To get it backwards is to be into bondage, into religion, trying to earn the favor of God. We don't earn our way into relationship with God by serving him. And have somehow by giving him our all, and then he will accept us and forgive us. No, we serve out of God's love, forgiveness, and acceptance in the gospel. That Christ has already done that for us. Lived that perfect life we could never live. Died an atoning death we could never pay. Through that truth, our hearts are filled with gratitude, and we sit at the feet of Jesus, and we go. Now, we can't physically sit at Jesus' feet. He has ascended. So what do we do? We sit at Jesus' feet by reading his word, the Holy Scriptures. As we read his word, he talks to us. And then we go and talk to him. It's called prayer. We read his word. He talks to us. We talk to him. It's called prayer. That's why the sermon is called Teach Us to Pray. Teach Us to Pray. Three very clear movements in our text. You have the prayer. You have the parable. Uh, the prayer, verses 1 through 4, the parable 5 and 8, and then the promise 9 through 13. 
So as we study this together, look with me at verse 1. We see the context. Jesus is praying, sitting at the feet of his father, talking to the father. The father is talking to him. And one of his disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught us to pray. John the Baptist taught us to pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer is what it's been called. It's probably one of the most familiar, I would think, most recognized portion in all of Scripture. But if you notice in our text, it's a lot shorter than maybe what you're familiar with from Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches his disciples how to pray. Some believe that this account in Luke is the same as the account in Matthew. It's the same account, but Luke is shortening it, giving us a more succinct version. Others think, in which I am part of that, I, I think this is more accurate, is that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray on at least two separate occasions. The one in Matthew, and now the one in Luke. Jesus, the, the preacher, the teacher, is going from village to village, town to town, all over Galilee, all over Judea, teaching and preaching. You would expect him to ca- cover material that he's covered before, uh, you know, more than one occasion, I should say. Good teachers often repeat what they say, but they say it in a different way, not always the exact same manner. I think that's what's happening here. Unlike the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is just teaching, here we have a disciple saying, teach us to pray, because Jesus was what? He was praying. And if you notice, it's not wrong. We've said this prayer out loud, even in Matthew 6, our Father, we've said it corporately. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus is teaching here and in Matthew 6, but here in Luke Luke 11, uh, uh, is is not to be used as a a verbatim prayer. In other words, just say it like this. It's it's more of a guide. It's a model on how we should pray. Again, nothing wrong with saying this prayer, but this is a model. And as Jesus models for us on how we ought to pray, a guide to how we ought to pray, he begins as he did in Matthew 6. He's teaching here in a different context, but he begins with who God is. Notice that with me. He's a father and he is what? Holy. He's the sovereign Lord and he's the loving father. That is is a wonderful balance to begin our prayer life. Sovereign Lord, loving Father. A recognition of His holiness, but also the intimacy that we share together as children of God. There's a caring, kind Father that Jesus' disciples can make their request to. Jesus thought it necessary and important to talk to His Father, and He's saying it's important for us that we talk to His Father as well. We sit at His feet, listening to His words, and then communicating with Him in prayer. It's a good definition of, of prayer, right? Communicating with God. You, you, you speak, you pray as you speak, and God hears your words. You, you can talk to him silently and from the heart. Why? Because God knows our thoughts. Prayers include talking and thinking with God, and prayer includes, and I hope you all know this, I hope you do know this, prayer includes singing, corporately or alone. Okay, we should, you know, God speaks through his word as the word is being preached. We respond to him corporately as we sing together. And, and hopefully as we respond to the word preached, our hearts and our affections are toward God. As we read these words, not just words on a screen, but it's a heart prayer to God. That's why it's so important to stay put after the preaching and respond if you can. This is what I heard. This is what you're telling me. This is what I've learned. This is how I'm pressing in the gospel in my life. And I'm singing back to God after the word is being preached. And we should also note that up to this point, it was not very common for the people of God to call him father. There are some places in the Old Testament, not a whole lot. Most of, it's, uh, most of it uh, is used corporately, the father of Israel. They didn't relate to God primarily as a father, Certainly not in the way which Jesus did, and certainly not in the way which Jesus says uh, that we are to now, that we are taught to do, to relate to him as our personal father. Jesus almost always uses the term father, and he says, not, not, it's not just for me, I call him father, but it's for you, my disciples, my followers, you can do it too. We, should, we, 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 we are invited to, to speak to God, and trusting him as a child speaks to his 
Father. The scripture says in Romans 8, you received, we children of God have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry out, Abba, Papa, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So with the help of the Spirit, through faith in the Son, we pray to God as our Father. Come to him as, as, as sons and daughters, and intimacy with and prayer with our Father. Now let me just say this before I move on. Some of you may have had some biological fathers, and you hear the word fathers, that were abusive, they were absent, my dad was absent. Um, neglectful, and maybe just downright mean. So calling God Father may be a trigger, may conjure up all kinds of bad and hurtful and harmful thoughts and feelings. My, my encouragement to you is to, to, to please trust what God says in his word. Rehearse the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. Taking every thought, every unbiblical thought about the Father that's not biblical captive, as the Bible says, to the obedience to Christ. Reject the old tapes. Renew your mind with the word of truth. God is a perfect, loving, compassionate, and kind father. You know, that's something I, when I came to faith in 1987, my, as I said, my father was an absentee father. He had passed by then, but he wasn't really there for us at all. And I had to, I had to play the new tapes my God will never leave me nor forsake me. I don't have to chase after and try to, try to make a relationship with happen, happen with him. That's my, that's my natural dad. He's inviting me. He's inviting you. It's our father. It's a great invitation, but, but, but as glorious as it should be, we should do it in, not in a flippant manner. Look what he said. For God is holy, but ho and hallowed be thy name. God is, God is our Father, but holy is your name. Uh, the, when, you, when you hear the word name or the name of someone, it, it reveals and sums up the whole character of the person. Our Father, hallowed be your name. All that God has revealed himself to us to be in Scripture is, teaches us that we are to revere him. There's that loving intimacy and then there's that respect. Guys, your children, do you, does your children love and respect you? Just as their friends, maybe you're absent. He, God loves us and wants us to respect and honor him. We acknowledge his holiness, his, his otherness. That's what, that's what hallowed means. His beauty, his infinite worth, his immeasurable value, a posture of reverence and awe and respect that permeates our hearts even as... A, we can invite it to call him Father. That's what the balance here is all about. And, and calling him Father and recognizing his holiness helps us to see the need to repent, to, to chase after him and, and seek forgiveness and mercy and grace and kindness that he's willing to pour out on his children. And so it glorifies God and it humbles us as we acknowledge he's holy, I'm not, I need forgiveness. Hallowed be your name throughout the world, in my life, until what? Your kingdom come. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for the, the establishment of God's authority, his rule. Jesus was teaching and preaching all over about the kingdom of God. Now he's telling his disciples, teaching his disciples to pray for its coming. Remember, we're saying the kingdom of God is first and foremost the reign and rule of God. It's not the nation. It's not a system. It's not a, a geographic region. It's the sovereign reign of God over creation, over enemies, over all people. So we pray, kingdom come. Glorious rule. Begin to reign and rule. Take control, authority over the world. Beginning with my submission to your authority now, today. But includes the expectation of the hope of the future reign, the future rule of God, asking that one day, very soon, these days we've been praying, Jesus, come back, put an end to wars, end to poverty, end to racism, end to, end to hatred. Come, Lord Jesus, future reign. Put everything right that's been broken. We live as a church of God seeking to make, as Calvin would say, the invisible kingdom visible. 
So it's now rain as well. We fight injustice, feed the poor, care for the marginalized, love those who hate us, forgive those who, who sin against us as we point to the kingdom of Christ. Because someday, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no poverty. There'll be no one marginalized, hated, when King Jesus comes and reigns and rules in perfect righteousness. He started the program, he's going to finish the program. So do we pray that way? Do you pray that way? Do we pray that way? Do we acknowledge that God is our Father? Our good and glorious Holy Father who is sovereign over the world. Our eyes, our eyes fixed upon Him. Our hearts submitting to His Lordship even now. Praying for the future reign. Is that, is that how, is, see that sets, that sets the mood. That sets the, the idea, that sets the perspective. Tone of our worship. You are holy, you are good. Honor, reverence, awe, but you are our Father who loves and cares and wants to hear from his children. It's all about his will and his kingdom, not our puny will and our, our kingdom, right? And now Jesus established the authority and the character of God. He goes to the request, how we ought to pray. Notice with me, though, as Jesus turns right now to the request, verse 3, notice the us in those verses. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins, we ourselves Forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. It's a family prayer. Not that you can't pray this prayer, but, it, but Jesus is teaching his disciples about the community of people, the, the covenant people of God. For us. And that has implications. Give us each day our daily bread. Help us to be dependent on you for the things of life. Day by day. Not tomorrow. Not the next day. Today, give me, Lord, what I need to sustain life. Help me to stay in a continued dependency upon you for my daily needs, not my daily greeds. If you're anything like me, and maybe some of you are, sometimes my head gets so far in advance that I start stressing me out and worrying what, what the future holds. And no, Give me today my daily need. I also think, I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, but I think, I think it's appropriate prayer. Not just life-sustaining bread, clothing, and things that we need day by day, but I think, I think we could say that we could pray to God for our daily needs for wisdom, wisdom for the day, insight for the day of the hurts and needs of others. Today, daily, give me the ability to honor and worship you in spirit and truth. God cares about our physical needs, but even more so about our spiritual needs, including the need to be forgiven. Forgive me today. Let me have victory over temptation today. Sometimes just keeping in a day is, is releasing. Number two, second prayer for petition. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, I'm going to spend a little time here, and then we'll move faster than the other uh, points, but this is important. It's important to me, and I know it's important to you. Notice in verse 4 how forgiveness is both forgiveness we receive from God and forgiveness we extend to others. You see that? Okay, they're inseparably linked. Did a whole sermon on forgiveness on our website. You can look it up. But let me, let me briefly, let's talk a little bit about what sin is, what sin does, and what forgiveness is and forgiveness is not. I want to put that out there. Again, on our website. Sin we know is lawlessness, 1 John. Sin we know, the scripture says, is rebellion, cosmic treason against our creator. It's idolatry. It's anything other than God that we set our hearts on, centered on, motivated on, masters us, rules us, anything that we substitute for God. Scripture tells us that we are to love the Lord thy God. We saw this a few weeks ago. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, all that's in us, we are to love God first and foremost, and we don't. He's commanded us to be holy, to be perfect, to love him with our whole being, but we sin, we fall short of the standard and places us in what's called an indebtedness or in debt, a, a debt that we could never pay. Sin includes thoughts, words, deeds, actions, motives, and Jesus likens it here to a debt. It's other places in scripture, but here in our text, it's a debt. All of us at some point know what financial debt is, right? Everybody's shaking their head. Yeah, I got the student loan. Seems like it's never ending. Been 600 years I'm paying my student loan off. 
house loan, credit cards, time of reckoning every month, maybe it comes out of your account or you got to do the old-fashioned way, whatever. Can you imagine with me for a moment that the first of every month you get a letter from God, a reckoning, here's all the sins you've committed. It's 175,000 pages. <laughs> That's all, yeah. Just a month. But this is the debt you owe. Family, it's on the cross. That Jesus suffered our deserved wrath. He, he, his body crushed for our sin. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. On the cross, our substitute and Savior pays the debt that we owe, that we could never pay. That's the good news. God has forgiven us based on that one-time perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And the moment you place your faith in Christ, your sin is put on him, his righteousness is put on you, and God declares judicially you are justified, forgiven, and declared righteous by the loving and gracious act of judicial forgiveness. All our sins, all our debt, Past, present, and future are completely forgiven. The debt is paid in full. That's the cross. All our debt, past, present, and future, things we haven't even committed as we sit here today, yet is forgiven at the cross of Calvary. And it's not only the sin that we commit and the debt we owe, but the sins that are committed against us. Look what he says. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We're indebted to you, you forgive us. We're indebted to, the people are, are indebted to us, for they sinned against me. Now, as we talk about forgiveness, the first thing we need to understand is the ultimate justice of the injustice of sin is for God to deal with. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's hard, but ultimately God will make all the wrongs right. Forgiveness means that we, one who's been sinned against, resolve to live with the consequences of another person's wrongdoings. We absorb the cost by bearing the consequences of the person's sins, requiring no payment for the unjust offense. It's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Bearing the consequences, not of his sin because he has none, but bears the consequences of our sin and our injustice. And unfortunately, the truth is, if you've been sinned against, you're living with the consequences of another action, whether you forgive them, release them, or you want to get even. Still consequences. You could forgive the debt, or you could try to get it paid back through hatred, bitterness, backbiting, backstabbing, and a million other ways we find to get what you owe me. They made you suffer, now it's time for you to suffer. You know what happens then? Not only are you in bondage, I'm in bondage, but our hearts are getting colder and colder. Bitter, more bitter. When you and I refuse to get vengeance, though you want it so badly, it hurts. Forgiveness is a process that hurts. There's pain. If you truly forgive and absorb the debt owed to you because of the sin, you, the forgiver, suffers. It doesn't go into thin air. There's a suffering. There's a sacrifice. There's an absorbing of the debt. That is why forgiveness of sins, listen, family, the forgiving of sins from the heart is always substitutionary. We feel real pain. We feel real hurt. And we take on the cost. That's what Jesus did. Because how, how can you have closure without disclosure? How can you have feeling, healing without the revealing of your feelings? Forgiveness from the heart, releasing them of the debt, is a way of putting an end to the vicious cycle of the anger and the bitterness that we have. Let me tell you what forgiveness is not. People say these things, but it's not true. Forgiveness does not mean that we tolerate sin and allow an offending party, right, to, to habitually sin against you. It also means that we should not 
that it means that we should not pursue justice if the crime if the sin is a crime, right? We must pursue justice. In fact, forgiveness is not a is not a violation. It's not how we just turn a blind eye to injustice, especially when there's been sin committed that we need to call the authorities. You can forgive and call the police. Sometimes we need to have strong boundaries in place as well. Okay? It doesn't mean that we should not pursue justice. Sometimes we should. Forgiveness does not mean we tolerate sin. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Trust is lost quickly and trust is earned slowly through a faithful track record. Forgiveness and trust may overlap, but they're separate issues. Don't tolerate sin. Not tolerating sin, not different than trust. Forgiveness is not forgetting. When the Bible says that God forgives our sin and remembers them no more, does not mean that he has got amnesia and he's like, oh yeah, I forgot Luke cursed that guy out. You know, it doesn't happen. Well, I didn't see you sleeping with your girlfriend. Like, I forgot about that. No, it means that you are not being held accountable. That God will no longer hold our sins against us. It's paid for, never to be charged against our account. When true forgiveness takes place, the memories of the event don't control us anymore. That's the key. Doesn't mean tolerate sins. Not the same as trust. Not mean forgetting. Forgiveness is not many times a one-time event. If you've been hurt deeply and you work through the process of forgiveness, there may come a time down the road that you're involved in a circumstance or a situation and it just triggers an emotional circumstance or instance that takes place and you're feeling the pain again. It's like it's fresh all over. we got to go back to God. I need your help. Kent Yu says this, it is hard to maintain a forgiving spirit, but actually the struggle is evidence of God's grace in the believer's heart because otherwise he or she would just give in to the hatred. So if you've, I've forgiven this person, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is, this is coming up. Look, that's the grace of God. Drawing us to the place of forgiveness so bitterness and hatred don't take root. Five, lastly, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Not the same as trust, not the same as reconciliation. There's no genuine repentance. There can't be reconciliation. Matthew 18, if you confront your brother with a sin... Uh, that he's done to you, he says, if, you, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. The word listen has to do with accepting and responding. Sometimes when there's deep repentance, it opens the door for reconciliation, but there's a difference between the two. Oftentimes, people refuse to deal with their sin, or the offending party may be dead. It was still required to forgive from the heart, but there can be no reconciliation. One can still absorb the debt, one can still release the offending party, and choose not to require that they pay the debt. And yet still there can be no reconciliation. It's not safe. But listen carefully. Lovingly. We are not only commanded to forgive. But when we do so. It shows that we are part of the family of God. We resemble the Father. Because we, those, who begin, those who have been forgiven much will forgive the debts of others. The soul that clings to the cross is the only means of forgiveness, the only means of hope for forgiveness, will forgive others. Again, this prayer is us. Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive others. Are we a community that is quick to forgive? Are we a people that are quick to forgive each other? Are we encouraging one another to release and to work through the forgiveness process so that we can walk free from bondage of the past. We live in a community like that. Give us daily, forgive us, now lead us not into temptation. This last petition does not mean that God is tempting us with a carrot of sin to see what, so you can, you know, jump around and dance around for me. James, the Lord's half-brother, makes that very clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God neither instills evil into anyone, nor is he a partner with our sin or with our guilt. He is holy, he is good, in him there is no darkness at all. The petition here calls upon God to aid and prevent 
submitting to sin's power, not because God is leading us into sin, but because God will help us when it feels so overwhelming. Again, a dependency upon God. The word temptation here in our text, perasmus, it can be translated temptation, it can be translated trial, testing, depending on the context. James chapter 1, listen to this. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. That's the word. Perasmus, when you have, when you, when you have trials, testing, or sometimes it's translated temptation. We have trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, that's a different word, to examine, to prove genuine, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there's this count all joy, various trials, testing, producing steadfastness. First Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's that word again. Could be translated temptation, depending on the text. So that the testing of your faith, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So temptation can denote an enticement that has the goal of causing us to sin or it can refer to a test or a trial of the validity of one's faith. Jesus is saying that we should pray that the Father would protect us from, from time of testing, a time of temptation to keep us away from particular things that we know that can be harmful to us. God sometimes deems it best to, to, to bring trials into our lives, and we all know that. Helps us to refine our faith, helps us to show us what's in us, how far we've come, how far we need to go. Sometimes he tests a lot. But God's purposes are always wonderful, constructive, to strengthen us in our faith. God tests us for good. The tester, excuse me, the tempter, which is called Satan, the tempter, always tries to exploit us. For he, he's for our ruin, not for our good. And the prayer is, Lord, if it be possible, uh, please, no tests. I don't want to risk damaging my honor, my, uh, falling on my face. Daryl Bach gets it right. He said this, the request implores divine aid to prevent succumbing to sin's power. Not because God desires the disciples to fall into sin, but because he can prevent it from overwhelming the believer, end quote. J.I. Packer. Temptation, he says, or testing, may be our lot. Maybe what's going on, maybe our lot. But only a fool will make it his preference, end quote. And if we're honest, we're like, Lord, I know there's times of testing in my life, but I know there are places, man, I, I, I don't want to go. Help me. Provide for me. Lead me. Let me get into the parable. As I said, the first point's longer. We'll, we'll move along here. Jesus highlights this prayer with now this parable. Teaching them and us about boldness. Asking for what we need from our generous and Father. A parable we know is a real-life story, real-life illustration, parable, meaning lay alongside, to teach us a spiritual truth. Now, this parable that Jesus teaches here in this next few verses um, has a very um, distinct cultural background, okay? So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, in antiquity, in that day, uh, food was not, as you know, as feasible and easy and accessible as it is today, right? So those three A.M., middle of the night, back in my day, Denny's run, uh, wasn't happening. Much of the food in that day was prepared for the day, only for the day. So those 3 a.m. refrigerator raids that you make, that's not available either, okay? It's also important to recognize that in ancient culture, in antiquity, in ancient culture, in Eastern culture, there was a high priority on showing hospitality. It's a sacred duty, a sacred honor to show hospitality to strangers, Right, No Motel 6 with a light on waiting for you to show up. That's not in that day. So when you're traveling long distances, and you're going from village to village to village, especially when it got late, you would stop in and you would board with friends or family or someone who knew someone, anyone who would open up their home. And of course, the first thing you would do as a travel for a long distance is provide some food. And bread, we know in that day, was essential. 
Not just they ate it, but they used it to dip, they used it to scoop. And Jesus tells a story of an unexpected visitor that sent no emails, no text messages, just shows up in the middle of the night at midnight, and uh, he's hungry, he's been traveling. And some of you are thinking, midnight, man, I'm just getting started at midnight, right? Any know night owls here? All right, not me, 9.30, I'm done. 12 o'clock, man, you're going to be banging on my door, because I'm not going to hear you. Right, so he finds himself, Denny's closed, don't want to go to Cumberland Farms, and the man arrives late at night, and he's unable to meet this expected hospitality. There's only one thing to do, you don't have any food, I got it, let me go annoy my neighbor next door. He can, he can either just send the guy, look, I ain't got nothing, move on, or let me go seek food from someone else, and that's what he does. Right, maybe the only problem is your neighbor's sleeping at midnight. But he wants to save face, so he's middle of the night. Verse 7, the response. Don't bother me. Door's now shut. That bolt's closed. It would make a lot of noise if he opened it. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So the guy's home, it's one room, one bed, and all his kids are there. How he got more than one in one bed, I'm not sure, but that's a whole other story. You can think about that on the way home. He tells them four things. Don't bother me. Door's shut. Children are in bed. I'm not getting up. I mean, you can almost, you know, you, you could see the, 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 um, the humor and the intensity as well in this story. If the neighbor gets up, he's going to wake his kids. And you know what happens when kids wake up in the middle of the night? It's time to play. It's breakfast time. They're like, no, it's go back to bed. Everybody's up. No one wants to go back to bed. But the man in bed realizes, my, this neighbor's not leaving me alone, man. He won't go away. I might as well just get up, give him what he wants, and send him on his merry way. So with a sigh of, of uh, exasperation and frustration, he rolled out of bed, gives his neighbor the bread, Careful, right? Don't want to step on any kids. Now, does he do this because he loves his neighbor or because he wanted to go back to bed? He did it because his neighbor had the audacity to come at midnight and keep banging and asking and asking until he got what he wanted. Do not bother me, my children. I tell you, though he will not get up, verse 8, and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give whatever he needs. Hmm. The, the point of the parable is not that God does not love you, he's irritated with you, but that if an irritated person responds to boldness in knocking, how much more of our good and gracious God who loves and cares for us if we are persistent in prayer, will give us what we need. In fact, the word impudence can mean, which does mean, shameless audacity. It could be used in a negative sense. We know those people, right? They got no filter. They just say whatever they want to say. You're thinking, oh my word, don't say that. Like, don't you have anything? Like, you're crazy. Please, go, go away. Here's more of a positive. Listen, Jesus is not saying that God gets annoyed when we bother him at midnight, but that we should not be timid but bold. Not irreverent but confidence. Even, even shamelessly presenting our petition, petitions before God. Continuing to pray and pray and pray until we get the answer. God is not like the man in bed. It's more about the neighbor. Not, it's not about the neighbor and God. It's more about the petitioner and the disciples in which he's teaching. God neither numbers slumbers or sleeps, Psalm 121. He loves to help his people in need, Psalm 34. Jesus is making a contrast to show that God is ready and willing to help us because even with the most grumpiest neighbor, if he can be persuaded by his friend's shameless insistence to help him in the middle of the night, how much more will our loving, good, kind, gracious Father in heaven hear our prayers and when we come and pray in this shameless audacity, continuing petitioning him all the time. Leon Morris, we must not play at prayer, but must show persistence if we do not receive the answer immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering the context 
makes it clear that he is eager to give. Now listen to what he says. But if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. I think that wraps that up. The promise. Verse 9. I tell you, ask. It will be given to you. Seek, you'll find it. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Ask, seek, and knock. It will be given to you. Now, the crazy prosperity gospel preachers take this verse as if there's no context and no other verse in all the Bible. Look, God just says ask, and he'll give you that brand new Mercedes. He made that plane so cheap I had to buy it. If you don't know that, you could Google it. Look it up. I mean, the prayers about the kingdom coming, the daily bread given, the forgiveness of others, is context. But the verbs that Jesus uses here is continuous. In other words, it doesn't say just ask once, just seek once, just knock once. It's continual. It's persistent. And we know that God says yes sometimes. Yes. We know that God says no. And we know sometimes God says, you got to wait. You got to wait. Don't have to answer this question. Just think about it. Who do you think knows what's best for you? You and your little brain or the sovereign creator ruling authority of the whole world? Just asking. But what you do when you don't get your answer, right? You keep asking, you keep praying. So what are you not praying for? I mean, this, this really spoke to me this week. You know, I, I need to be more persistent in prayer for my children, my grandson. Like, what are you not seeking, asking, and knocking? What, what are you not talking about to God, excuse me, to God about all the time? What are we not bringing to God? Like, here I am, Lord, I, I'm seeking you. Uh, this is what I need, this is where I'm at. I, I need your help. I'm asking. I'm asking, I'm asking. And then we have to seek. We have to seek God. That means we don't just sit around. Seeking God means we do something. Maybe you, you, got, you're, maybe you don't like the job you're at. <laughs> you, 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 your boss is a complete jerk and your prayer has been lately, get me out of here. You don't just sit around and wait for someone to ring your bell, call your phone. You put your resume together. You start looking, you start searching. Right? So we have to ask, what's to seek? Now, there are times that we need to just wait on the Lord. Even just waiting on the Lord is not passive. Right? It's not, it, waiting on the Lord uh, is, is not passive, it's active. It, it, it's, it's, it's seeking and looking and waiting and anticipating God to do something. Ask and seek. And if it doesn't get answered, keep knocking. Right? So asking, then seeking involves a greater commitment, and then we're knocking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. It'll be given to you. You'll find it. It'll be open to you. Verse 10, for everyone who asks, receives. The one who finds, seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Listen, our asking, seeking, knocking will not be in vain. God will give. God will reveal. God will open. Again, Jesus is not saying anything you want. It's just yours. Saying this is the way we ought to pray. This is the, the model of prayer that we ought to keep seeking. We, are, we ought to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking according to his good will and, and his glory. We'll get our answer. Prayer is, is, is neither unheard or unheeded. God hears our prayers. It always will be answered by God when we trust him for what is best for us. His glory, our good. Verse 11. What father among you as you're asking, seeking, knocking, if his son asks for a fish, you will instead give him a serpent. For he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion. If then, who are evil, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? Like, did you catch that? Like, no, he didn't just call me evil. He did. You who are evil, oh, hold on. No, no. Total depravity, that's what it's called. Yet even in our depraved state, we know that when our kids say, hey, Dad, I'm hungry, we're like, yeah, uh, here's a serpent. Dad, can I get some eggs? Uh, sure, here's a scorpion. Like, we know better than that. Like, what, who would do that? What dad would do that to his children? 
On the contrary, we want to give good gifts to our children. Even in our sinful shortcomings, Dad, generally speaking, will give to great lengths to serve and care and love and provide for their children. Right? We work, we save, we put money away, we buy new bikes and dolls, and, and we go on vacation. We want to give special gifts to their birthday. I mean, we just want to do that. How much more our perfect Father in heaven will give to us what we need? He's never given his children anything but the best. So if evil people do not harm their children, but do good to them, how much more will God do good for his own children? So despite our, despite our sinfulness, we enjoy giving good gifts to our children, and, and God wants to give us good gifts. Romans chapter 8 says this, He who did not spare his own son, the father who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Everything needed. Not our greeds, but our needs. And then Jesus, notice at the very end of this prayer. I, don't, I didn't say it, let me say it now. He says he will give him good gifts, and give him the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And I'm like, where did that come from? We haven't been talking about the Holy Spirit at all. We're talking about physical needs, model of prayer, bread, and uh, you know, seeking and knocking, earthly things. The parable that the, 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 with the man is knocking on his door. I mean, material stuff. What's going on? Jesus comes to the end of his instructions about prayer. And he promises that when we ask God, he'll give us good gifts, but he will give us the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the greatest good gift par excellence that God can give his children is himself. God the Holy Spirit. Teach us how to pray. I will give you the Holy Spirit because you needed to pray. You needed to pray. The whole passage culminates and climaxes with the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Son promises that the Father will give us the Spirit of all the gifts that God could give. None greater is than Himself, the person of the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, when the Son promises that the Father will send us the Spirit, He is promising that God Himself will dwell within us. What possible greater gift could there be? Indescribable gift. Dr. Philip Ryken asked, what will the Spirit do in us? He will reveal the truth of God through the teaching of Scripture, which he himself first revealed. He will be in conviction of sin, granting us the gift of repentance. He will persuade us the truth of the gospel, showing us the beauty and glory of Christ. He'll work in us the gift of faith. By faith we'll be united to Christ, so uh, only through the Spirit we receive the blessings of salvation, justification, sanctification, and adoption. And that is just the beginning. The Spirit will, will bring us victory over sin. The Spirit will equip us with the gifts of ministry. The Spirit will grow in us the fruit of righteousness. The Spirit will assure us that we're children of God. The day, one day, the Spirit of God will raise us from the grave. From the dead, as he raised Jesus from the dead, he will transform us by his grace into glory. All that is the work of the Spirit. And listen, family, we call God our Father. We can trust him for our daily provision. We can ask and seek and knock and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. It is through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and our faith in him that we receive the Holy Spirit, that our sins are forgiven, his grace is given, and we are adopted into his family where God now is our father. We can approach him like children, daughters, and sons approach their loving, kind father. So how do we grasp that reality? How can we truly grasp with our hearts that truth and affection by recognizing this, and I'll close with this. One time in the life of Jesus, just once, he doesn't call him father. He doesn't call him father. Every time, but one time, he doesn't call him father. And that is the one time on the cross, he cried out not as a child. He didn't say, my father. He didn't say, holy father. He didn't say, Abba, father. Jesus endured the agonies of the cross, and while hanging, suffering the full weight of God's wrath against sin, our being cursed in our place, he cried out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Matthew 23. That is the only time. Why? Because he felt the rejection of the family so that you could be adopted into the family. He was getting what we know we deserve, judgment, rejection, separation, but he was doing it for us. Therefore, we can pray. We can bring our petitions. We could shamefully delight before God who hears our petition, who answers our prayer. We can pray persistently, asking, seeking, and knocking. We can pray expectedly that he'll answer according to his glory and our good. But most importantly, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, all being made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. As the band comes up, let me, as we respond in singing, prayerfully singing, the right to come to God as Father is made available through the work of Christ. The incarnation, the perfect life, the obedient death, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice, shedding his blood, being buried in the grave, rising from the dead. Jesus makes that way into the presence of God. Jesus sends John 16. He says, after the cross, after I pay for the sins of the world, after I rise from the dead, after all the debt that you owe for your sin is paid for, I will what? I will go, but I will send the Holy Spirit. It's through the work of the cross. That forgiveness, justification. God opens our eyes and minds to the beauty and glory of Christ through the work of, of the Holy Spirit. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Do we pray this way? Let us learn together. I know I learned a lot. Let's pray. Let's, let's boldly go as Jesus paves the way, as the Spirit leads us to the Father and pray. Father, thank you. We revere you. We love you. We praise you. We recognize your authority, your power, your glory. We recognize the intimacy we have as men and women, children of God, that we can come and we can call you Father. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice that makes it possible. Thank you that we can come because you have forgiven us of our sins and the imputation that we're covered by your righteousness. The cross paid our debt in full. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for helping us see the beauty of Christ. Thank you for allowing us to believe and repent and trust in you. And Father, maybe there's someone here that needs to forgive someone. God, I pray that you would help them. And if we need to come alongside you, we will. We get rid of the bondage and the bitterness. But Lord, we do end our time as we get ready to sing, recognizing that you are our Father and we love you. And we want to see your glory displayed. We want to see the gospel demonstrated and declared. We want everyone everywhere to see how glorious and good you truly are. That they too can have their sins forgiven and call you Father as we do. So help us to demonstrate the gospel. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.